Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain! I can't hear you! Aye, aye, Captain! Oh! Praxis! So, SpongeBob said, swear words are sentence enhancers, and I am all about that. Exactly. When did SpongeBob say that? Season one. And I was like, oh, they got away with murder in that. (laughs) Like literal murder? No, I'm joking. Probably. Probably. Could you imagine? I'd love to see that. I'd love to see like a SpongeBob murder episode. Oh, uh, like a film noir thing? I'd be so down. So down. Noir. Bikini Bottom Noir. There is a musical. Yes! The musical's fucking great. I said literally, we just we had a recording last night, and what was the musical you were talking about that? Alanis Morissette, the musical. Why yeah, is there a musical for fucking film. everything? Yeah. Oh my god. Because musicals are amazing, and you're just a philistine. Oh, yeah. So that was only 30 <laughs> seconds before I mentioned musicals, which is maybe a record. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Yeah, no, the SpongeBob musical is fucking great. But yeah, no, and because we we both stay in Glasgow, so like swearing is every second word. That's amazing. It's a form of endearment. Definitely yeah. a form truly, of endearment. Truly, truly. Yeah, someone's a good cunt in Glasgow. That's what people say. That's a regional difference too, because when you go down south to like London or that, they don't say cunt like Glaswegians say cunt, and it's. Mm. Um, I mean, oh, I'm no. sure Travis says this, like, Americans, from what I'm understanding with a very broad brushstrokes, hate the word cunt. It's incredibly offensive. Oh, like, Americans go into a moral panic anytime you use that word, and especially if a man uses it, because you must be an anti-feminist, you must be a terrible misogynist using that word ever, even in a term of endearment, which they would say is deceptive, because you think you're on the right side, but you're still using language like cunt. What cunts, honestly? Total cunts. They <laughs> <laughs> like, use it all the time in Scotland. <laughs> One of the best things my partner's ever said to me, like, we've been together. Be quiet, Luna, I'm speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if you can hear her squeaking in the background. Yeah. Probably, yeah. This will be a fun edit. <laughs> Silly little cunt. I uh, know. <laughs> it's that basically, um, we've known each other for, like, what, 13 years or something? And, like, dating for about eight. And They have the same name. We have the same name. He's also called oh, Alex. Wow. It's really helpful. Uh, it really feeds my narcissism. He said to me once that one of the best things that's happened in our relationship is that his usage of the word cunt is um, just in, like way more than it ever used to be, which I take as like the most wonderful thing that he's ever said. I mean, that's true influence, right? Like I, you I, have right? to love someone to be like, my entire lexicon has changed. <laughs> So we've done it. We've cracked America. And today we're recording across the Atlantic, but we totally fucked up the time difference and arrived an hour early. Today we're speaking with Dr. Travis Cheering Live. Travis is Assistant Professor of English at Kenyon College, Ohio, and currently he's working on two research areas, the anti-vaccination movement in 18th and 19th century Britain, and historical models of chronic pain from the same period. He's also a poet who writes about embodiment at the intersections of queerness and disability, so roll up your sleeves and prepare for Brexit. I think that's meant to be a vaccination reference, but Alex wrote that bit. I am here for that. I love that. It was originally like roll up your sleeves and prepare for 5G, but I actually... Have you been vaccinated yet? Yes, thank God. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was surprising how slow the rollout was in Ohio, and then it's just ramped up. Now you can get it literally down the street. Oh, really? And it was just, what, less than a month ago when it was, like, virtually impossible to get a, a, mm. an appointment? Now it's widespread, but I still know so many people who have it, and it's, like, shocking to me. Yeah. It's really shocking. Like, they haven't, because they haven't been able to book it, or because of the Yeah, suspicion? they literally can't get appointments in s- okay. some people in other states. Some of the Canadians that are, like, still trying to get their appointments right oh, now. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, it's, it's not great. What did you get, though? Like, Moderna, Pfizer... I had a choice between J&J and Moderna, and J&J is known for having like significantly less uh, in terms of like immune response. And I was like, fine, I'll take the two shots. I'd rather have like the 90% uh, Mm -hmm. protection. Mm -hmm. So I went and did that, but I felt like shit after both. Like it was awful, (laughs) fucking awful. And I'm like, at least it worked, I guess. Yeah, I got the Moderna and um, I was just like, Alex, Dolly Parton saved my life. (laughs) (laughs) Over here. Um, it's you know AstraZeneca for if you're older but you can't have it if you're under 40 now really Um, yeah Mm. because of the blood clots thing even though like the rate is much much lower than even like the contraceptive pill which we give teenagers like sweeties but you know men are getting they're just women (laughs) yeah no (laughs) so oh 
But yeah, no, it's getting there in the sort of adult population in the UK. I think it's, it's now like 20 year olds that are getting it at the time of recording. Mm-hmm. Alex just got Pfizer. This is fine, but you know, Moderna is just a little bit more unusual at Camper. Wow, okay, yeah. More glitter. Yeah. More glitter, more queer. I'm so sorry that I didn't get a queer vaccine, Louise. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> but which one is the so so your your argument is that Moderna is the queerest one? I would say so, just because of the Dolly Parton vibe. I see rhinestones. Yeah, I mean it, we're talking about the drag queen of the world, Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. accurate. She's she's mm-hmm. amazing. I love her so much. Um, mm-hmm. Save my life. Save my save life. My life. Like, literally, save my life. Working nine to five G. Nine to five G. <laughs> Please tell me that she's gonna do a cover of her. Let's do that. That makes me feel good. Yeah. And then, I remember she released a video with like where she sung "Vaccine" to the tune of Julie, oh, like to encourage God. people to get their shots. But... And she wore the good wig for that one, mm-hmm. like the one where you can't see the edges, because she wanted to look good for the. Edges. Speaking of music, mm-hmm. shall we do? Shall you do? Shall I do? So what we like to do is we like to curate a jingle for our guests that come oh on. So it's kind of like Name That Tune, but we play it on the kazoo because we have no musical talent. So. I remember this now. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this now. Okay. Good, good. So, um, yes, Alex is doing it this week. <clears throat> Revenge. I am. Because I always <laughs> Revenge. I mean, I'm not going to be any better, let's be honest here. <laughs> I know, but... I like not doing it. But it's an integral <laughs> part of the podcast, but we always fight over who gets to not do it. Name that tune, but it's somehow in our heads connected to your research. You expect me to have musical knowledge. That's where yeah. you guys went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> You've not even heard it yet. <laughs> yeah, no idea. <laughs> it could be completely spot on. But yeah, so tell us what it is, why it's possibly related to your research. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, you ready? I can't do this. She's going nuts. Would you like me to take over? Yes, I'm sorry. I can't handle it. Did you see a jump? Totally fine up until that point. And then it's like the kazoo comes out. It's like, I need the kazoo. Oh, yeah. Join in, Luna. Yeah. I think you're good now. No, we're not good. We're not good. We're not good. what it was and now I don't I really don't what did you think at first I thought it was uh the circle of life which would have been really interesting Uh, but then I was like then it went minor for a second I was like Mm -hmm. that is not the circle of life happiness that where you I have I actually do not know what it is shockingly my rendition (laughs) (laughs) so spot on it's actually everybody hurts by REM wow I mean that that takes me back I'm Mm -hmm. like playing the video in my head now like wow Fitting, very fitting. Okay. Why is it so fitting? Related to my work, I think on the like the most fundamental level, a lot of us are in chronic pain. And the pandemic made it that much more obvious that a lot of us are in pain and in a lot of hidden pain, I might argue. And I think part of the struggle has been, what does it mean to talk about that pain publicly uh, when so many people are in pain, right? So like I hear, I have conversations with people and everyone's like, you know, how is it, how is it going? Everyone's afraid to say I'm good because literally a pandemic is happening. But if you say you're bad, it becomes comparative, right? Mm-hmm. But we're all in different forms of pain and that doesn't make it any less valuable to talk about individual experiences. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about just as we're sort of coming to the end of what we might call the pandemic, right? Like, what does it mean that we're coming to the end of something and returning to normal? I don't know if that's really the case when there's still so much pain. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I, I think as well, like, I mean, obviously this is your research but like if you have chronic pain then you don't want to turn around all the time and just say I'm fine but you know I'm still in pain today just make things about myself for a moment I've got endometriosis and it's Mm -hmm. it's shite (laughs) but it's just that thing (laughs) but that thing of like you know yeah I'm great I'm I'm in pain I'm in pain Mm -hmm. every day yeah 
and a lot of people are feeling that obviously which is why I think your work is so important to sort of be like well let's interrogate this or even what is the threshold of pain that is acceptable for us to say hey it merits care or Mm -hmm. attention right Mm -hmm. so how often do we have people in our lives sometimes friends sometimes family lovers that say oh it's not that bad well like we're all in pain it's a way of dismissing someone's pain and that has always been something that's to me of such a perverse response the argument that lots of people are in pain does not diminish the fact that you are in it like it's just such a strange response everyone feels that everybody hurts everybody hurts (laughs) you are am you did this yeah they're they're talking about sometimes they're not chronic no they're not chronic Um. (laughs) (laughs) yeah we fucked up with a song choice you could have at least gone for a song about chronic pain i can't think of any but you fucked up there alex I'm, very, I'm really fucked up. I'm so sorry. Vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. We stand the epistemology of Dolly. So what we, what we also like to do when we're kind of trying to get to know our guests and stuff is we ask them for a boring fact about themselves. We have to think it's not boring enough. It's not boring enough. Because we hate that whole construct of like, mm, yeah, we don't want to be impressed. Oh, tell an amazing fact. Yeah, okay, yeah, let's no. see. Like, actually, like it's not, it's not a pissing competition. Like, fuck all. No one's impressed. But is there a challenge for making it the most boring and mundane fact? No, no, because there's we've no had threshold. like my favorite slash least favorite responses, and there's been sorry if they're listening right now, but it's when the white guys come on, they're like, "I am the boring fact." It's like, oh Jesus Christ, girl. <laughs> <laughs> so don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I was literally gonna say like I have a thing for like totally clean notebooks right like okay. they have to be totally blank right but it, it's a certain kind of paper mm. that's just totally clean and blank mm. and people are like it's a blank notebook I'm like it's really boring it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life okay is it, is it about the weight of the paper do you like kind of like proper smooth paper like or smooth a little bit paper. of that rain but that's not boring now if I have to cl- if I elaborate right because no, now I would right. be like I, I like like that archival paper that's a little bit thicker, but it's like this perfect mm. surface that has no texture. Mm. Yeah, that's a really satisfying boring fact, and I think is is people that work in literature are like, oh, oh. what does the blank page mean? Oh, I know. Oh. But I think sometimes you can get like really pretty notebooks that like I've had loads, and I just have a thing of like buying notebooks where you're just like, I'm, I'm not going to use it. i'm sure it's all gonna stack it behind my bookcase and look at the fact that i haven't used them but they're still beautiful a friend of mine bought me a notebook because i lost one she got it personalized it just says dr alex very smart thoughts and actually i don't use it that's iconic it it gives me anxiety because i'm like what if my thoughts aren't smart (laughs) i can't put them in this notebook (laughs) i I take it back i wrote a poem about snail at a workshop and that's in here it's not very smart I just, I would fill it up with like, you know, ideas about my cat, my mm-hmm. grocery list, just mm-hmm. because the title of my notebook is very smart thoughts. Excellent. I think we know you're on a better level now, Travis. This is great. Thank this you so much. That's <laughs> Thank you so much. much. So informing. We want to get a bit seductive now. Um, so we asked you for your Tinder bio. Do you remember it? I don't. And I'm like now scrambling to find it. You you all actually might know it. We do have it here, but I want to know what you think it was. <laughs> God. Oh, did I make a herd immunity joke? Because if I did, God help me. God help me. Um, oh, of course, I made a cat joke. I, I am your queer crip cat dad here to make you overthink in all the right ways. Excellent. Yes. Yes, we love it. Okay. Confer, Louise, confer. What confer do you think? whether we'll swipe left or right on this. Uh, mm-hmm. This is Tinder, obviously. I'm in because cats. Other attributes I think are really fucking great, but cats. I also really appreciate the overthinking. I, I like someone that's honest, that you'll make me overthink things. Otherwise, it would be, you know, kind of psychological torture if you're like, mm-hmm. make it mm-hmm. subtle. Like, if, if, if you subtly sort of pepper my, my dating experience with you with overthinking, and then I'm suddenly, like, at least I know what's coming. Yeah, at least I know upfront to be like, oh God, I'm going to be challenged. I love it. It's, good. <laughs> it's also my way of getting around the fact that I'm really indecisive. So it's like, I can help you overthink the issue, but I will not make a decision no matter Excellent. what you say. Yes, mm-hmm. preaching to the choir. I hate it. Like, honestly, one of the best things about having 
having been a vegetarian for the last few years that my choices of food just like became very small at a restaurant love it real problem now that everyone's <laughs> jumping on the old bag wa- bag bag wagon the bandwagon <laughs> the bag wagon is is a different thing yes. um but the the bandwagon is 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 heaving and now and now I have more options it's just like oh fuck I can't just choose risotto again (laughs) (laughs) I really liked a mushroom risotto (laughs) you know what I love macaroni cheese yeah yeah that's a classic classic though I have a friend who's raw food vegan and I'm like girl how what do you what do you consume literally just bird food really go away (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I think I think that's right right I think I'm 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 up for some overthinking so I spend my life I'm thinking. I also enjoy the idea of cat dad. It sounds great. You know, I appreciate someone who cares and a cat dad cares. I just care by torturing my cat instead. So. Yeah, exactly. How do you torture your cat? Uh, pick him up and insist. I like carry him around and I just like bump him up and down like a child and he hates it. He's like, <laughs> do not infantilize me. I live a free life. I'm a big cat and I get to do what I want. I'm like, no, I'm just going to carry you for the next three minutes. What's your cat's name? Mercury, short for Freddie Mercury. Ooh, excellent choice. Not and not even the name we gave him was the name he was given at the adoption place. Oh, that's a good one. I really hate it when they come home like, oh, this is like snuffles, like shut up. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> Poor cat, like give it a chance. Yeah. Or like really human names. Oh, oh my God. Ian. I met a dog in the park the day called Kyle. Who the fuck names their dog Kyle? This person bought a dog and called it Kyle. No, I was with you. This is the crazy yeah. man, crazy Waimarana run. So Alex has, Luna is what? We think a Waimarana staffy cross. Yeah. We think. So she looks graceful, but has the, the butt head of a staffy. And uh, um, this crazy man had two Waimaranas. And he was like, hey, what's her? What's she? What's, he, what's she? What's she? And he was like, look at this, look at this. Kyle, come here. And grabbed his dog, lifted up the dog's tail to show us the dog's arse. And was like, look at the legs on this. Look at the indent. Same. They're it's absolutely the same. The same. It's the same. It's the same. Kyle and Luna, they're the same. She's <laughs> <Yeah>. just small. <laughs> it's like, wow, it's 10 a.m. and I've just looked at a dog's ass for a while and I haven't had a coffee. I really Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, man with the <laughs> I love our area. Please don't tell me that was his attempt at hitting on you because <laughs> that would have been, that's probably the worst I've ever heard. It's like, hey. It really wasn't, but I choose to believe it was. I think it was. To be honest, it's been so long from being inside. I, I don't remember what it's like to be catcalled anymore. Like, it's actually quite... Look at my dog's arse. Look at that. Like, yes. Oh, thank you. I look great today. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many layers to this. Like, why? Why that way? The other day, I was out walking just down the street, like I do, like a hooker. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and I was walking back from the pub and someone beeped me from their car. And I was like, oh my God thank you it's been so long nature is healing we're nature back. is we're healing back. we're getting cat cold everyone i love it i, I have this fear that just the years of being in lockdown i've like lost that window of like cat calling mm. i think i'm maybe slightly too old it's slightly too old you're like six months older than i am what are you talking about is this my future this is your future it's the same thing of like obviously we've not been able to do like theater for ages my years of being a high schooler in a, in a musical are gone now. Thanks to the fucking <laughs> pandemic. I had another year left of Now you'll have to play 20-year-olds. Fuck my life. The institution is probably feeling just fine. And I'm still hurting. Anyway, we should probably ask you. We should begin the question. Yes. Yeah, Sorry. Yes. Actually, our first question is having been browsing through your website this afternoon in preparation your academic profile picture is perhaps the best we've ever seen that's very kind and i'm wondering which one you're referring to is it the black oh, and white one uh yes there are, well there's a multiple black and white ones yeah so the the one with i'm wearing a cardigan that one's really special oh, no it's me. not the one where you were wearing things travis <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> of course i should have seen that setup i should have seen that setup why did i not think of that the cardigan was great it kind of gives us a nice kind of like i'm a professional and I yes, an illusion of professionality. <laughs> but yes, and then it kind of slowly fades. Day and sort of like, night. Oh. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that wasn't a question. It was just a statement we wanted to get in there. That's very kind. <laughs> I look forward to seeing yours, Louise, your rendition. My rendition. <laughs> oh, I, I will be doing that. Um, mm-hmm. Although, talking about photos of me, today Alex got her office on campus. 
it's only been like a year and um what is pride of place in your office oh in my office is um the wonderful gift that louise gave me i think was it for my 30th birthday it was yes um it was just just a headshot of her signed (laughs) (laughs) so i just i just love the the students coming in for like office hours and just like me just like i'm excited for when someone's like who who's that and i'm just make gonna make up a different story yes every time and see how many you can get away with yeah but anyway how's your phone reception been since your vaccination pretty pretty good I mean, I'm getting to 5G at this point. Nice, nice, nice. So So obviously vaccinations started coming in in the late 18th century or early 18th century? Late. The late 18th century. Mm. Good, good. What was the first one? Depends. It depends what what you want to call the first vaccination. You tell me. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) What's your professional opinion? I've seen that cardigan. You've got thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) The illusion has worked if I've convinced you of that. Probably a young farm boy named James Phipps. I believe, is the first vaccinated case. And what was he vaccinated against? Smallpox. Because that was apparently the major killer at that time. Was this like an accidental vaccination where he took something and they were like, oh my God, he's cured? Or was it just sort of like, come on, James? (laughs) (laughs) If only, right? It's like, you're going to meet this really lovely cow that's going to take care. No. Edward Jenner, when he's figuring out what he's doing with vaccination, realizes that milkmaids come into contact with cows all the time. And... Mm it started to become something that he was interested in doing experiments on. And he had a milkmaid, Sarah Nelms, who had cowpox at the time, a mild case. He used her case of cowpox to inoculate young James Fitz, and it worked. Good on James. So what's the what's the beef around um, uh, whether... Well Thank you, thank you. What's the debate around whether that is or is not the first vaccination? Because I think the very notion that cowpox could protect against smallpox had been something that was known about in sort of folk medicine, but not Mm. taken seriously by sort of professional medicine until Jenner makes it a thing uh, and brings it back to the London Metropole. There's something about medical legitimacy that's worth talking about there too. Like, Mm -hmm. why does it take a sort of doctor, physician to legitimize a practice that would have been used in in local communities uh, prior to that moment. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. So when you say folk medicine, that's not really a term I've heard before. Is it kind of, yeah, like natural remedies or sort Mm -hmm. of like there's like a folk knowledge that's aligned to those kind of medicinal practices and... The reason I don't want to use terms like, say, alternative medicine mm-hmm. or pseudoscience is because it frames it a certain way, right? It frames it in terms of orthodox and professional medicine as the legitimate ones and all of these others that came before were either antiquated or mm-hmm. not, like not actually useful or effective. But in fact, these were actively used in communities. So when I say folk medicine here, I mean that these were used in rural communities that were not legitimized by, say, urban environments. Right, so okay, London cool. did not take it seriously that in these smaller communities that they were, you know, essentially using cowpox as a way of mm-hmm. getting around the problem of smallpox. It's backwards country people, eh? <laughs> <laughs> not get those sorts of opinions these days. No, at all. no. But obviously we know that the vaccine contains liquid microchips, but was there a similar discourse going on when vaccination became more widespread, when the sort of vaccination program started down the line what did people think they were getting or was it just that they knew it was a disease that they were getting and then they freaked out about it did they think they were going to turn into a cow so this is something that i've been thinking a lot about where i hear especially in contemporary conversations people saying oh i've never heard of anti-vaxxers going to these kinds of extremes by saying oh like you know if you get a vaccine you'll get microchips or magnets in you the moment when vaccination becomes popularized there was an intense fear about what was called cow mania the idea mm. that if you're putting in the material of cows into your body, it would change you fundamentally. It violated all sorts of taboos about animal and human divides, mm. uh, religious ones specifically. I think Calmania, for me, what has been so interesting about Calmania is that it's explicitly about cognitive disability. There's an anxiety about a preventative act that involves taking in something infectious or toxic to you for some future benefit that may, in the process, render you incapable of reason. Mm -hmm. And I think about how enduring that fear is, especially as I hear the increasing amounts of anti-vaxxers who are explicitly anti-autism, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, vaccinations cause autism. I'd rather my kid die of an infectious disease than to live a life of autism. And Mm -hmm. that, to me, the logics behind that are so disturbing, but also really telling of like where we are right now. Yeah, totally. I think it's interesting to think about why cognitive disability is seen as being the absolute 
absolute worst case. Why has it got to be something in the mind as opposed to something in the body? Which, I mean, I don't have an answer for. I just think it's really interesting that that's what's getting picked up on. Do you have any sort of thoughts about that? What's your hot take? What's your hot take on why is cognitive disability the more frightening thing? I'm hesitant to make this argument because I know the enlightenment people are going to come for me but i think <laughs> classic enlightenment people yes we can take them. We can take them. i mean steven pinker of course like who you know is the embodiment of the enlightenment at this point the argument i want to make is that the enlightenment placed reason as the highest quality mm-hmm. of humanness right mm-hmm. you are defined as human by your capacity for reason and i think about in locke's concept of the social contract one of the ways you are allowed to participate in civic and public life is your capacity to be able to have reason Mm -hmm. so one of Locke's limit cases is the idiot right the idiot is presumed not to have any agency or capacity to participate in public life because he cannot fundamentally exercise reason so when you have something like cow mania reducing you to the state of a, a cow the idea there is that you lose your fundamental humanness and that seems to me to be what is kind of behind this anxiety Ah, because it's interesting though, because from the things I know about the COVID anti-vax position, it's again, like all the jokes we make about 5G and like microchips. To me, that sounds like an upgrade, right? So it's not about calmania. It's about actually, again, I don't actually really know what, what the problem, what, because it's, it's nuts. So, so is it that they're worried that they're being used as like a surveillance tool? Is it that they're worried that they're actually going to like, surely if you have a microchip processor in your brain, maybe your cognitive abilities will improve? I don't know. I think it's about surveillance, right? This idea that something that is framed as public health is now going to be used as a population management tool. Mm -hmm. And the the sort of sordid truth about that is that in the 19th century, that kind of was behind a lot of the vaccination programs, right? Mm. You had Victorian public health programs targeting the poor deliberately as the most vulnerable groups, but also the easiest to criminalize and punish for refusing compulsory vaccination. Mm -hmm. So... I make that connection and sometimes don't know what to do with it because I feel like it feeds anti-vax sentiment. But I try to make a distinction between giving a historical context as to why a certain set of ideas exist versus endorsing it or defending Mm -hmm. it as a position. I I think that's also what's happening. This idea that, you know, the the language of big pharma or, or state medicine seeing them as using vaccination as a way of controlling individuals. That's a really terrifying thing for a lot of people. The abject. Mm-hmm. So how did it sort of, so just to go back to the sort of Victorian context, because I'm biased, how did it manifest? So obviously, I think a lot of people know about the Contagious Diseases Act, which would allow police to, you know, search intimately women that they thought might be sex workers without due cause and quarantine them for however long. But that seems to be only sort of one side of the story. Like what other things were coming into play? during this period, right? What other sorts of programs? Sure. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about the Contagious Disease Act in relation to the the trio of vaccinate, compulsory vaccination laws that happened in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it's striking to me that they become increasingly punitive, right? It starts with, well, we can now write you up uh, if you don't vaccinate your kids. Then it became, we can fine you, and then we can imprison you, and then we can force you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it strikes me that Victorian public health measures were very much about localizing threat and figuring out who was most at risk and then managing it in more extreme ways. And I think the way that you described the Contagious Disease Act, which is so targeting towards sex workers, especially women, right? That is the MO of a lot of Victorian public health and vaccination is no exception. So then going back even further than so 18th century, like, mm-hmm. is it because they were like, the needle is so sublime? Were they just loving it? They're just like, oh yes, this is just the purest. What was the... <laughs> What's the difference then in terms of, so I, I, I don't know anything about the 19th century in terms of the Contagious Disease Acts, but was there sort of a similar policing function or sort of like governance element coming out in the 18th century? Or was it more just sort of like, they were like, oh my God, yeah, jab me with it. It sounds great. I think the resistance merely took a different form because vaccination doesn't become popularized until the late 18th century. Leading mm-hmm. up to that point, you have versions of inoculation that exist that are 
say, variolation, which actually uses smallpox to inoculate against smallpox, people were terrified of it because it was often done poorly and had horrible side effects. I mean, if we take it very seriously, like, essentially, you would perform some of these procedures by scratching your own arm and touching them against someone else's arm, right? Like, you were essentially creating forms of bodily contact that people would have an aversion to. So I think resistance existed, but... I think by the time we get to the Victorian moment, it becomes so systematic on a state level. Mm -hmm. That's when people really felt, okay, I feel like my rights are being infringed upon. The language of rights gets used when it becomes compulsory. This is a similarity to now, this notion about control and control and autonomy. How does that figure into this Victorian mindset? Was there an idea about what is rightfully yours as as a citizen? Like, where does the state and the individual come into play? I think you've identified exactly where the tensions are in terms of how do individuals define themselves in relation to the state and who gets to do that, right? So I'm thinking about the work of Nadia Durbach, who wrote a lot of the historical scholarship on this particular Victorian moment. And something that she says that has been really meaningful to me is that the language of liberalism is exactly how those anti-vax conversations happen. These are my rights. It is my choice to put something into my kid's body. Do not come into my home to tell me how I need to parent. That would have been the language of middle and lower class people who felt like their rights were being infringed upon when they were being forced to be vaccinated. So I'm now going to go to jail because I don't want to parent like the state wants me to. That was the kind of question that I think we heard then and we're hearing now just in different forms. It's it's just really interesting when there's like total echo happening between like then and now. Obviously vaccination was kind of invented or looked at for a reason because we are in outbreaks of certain diseases. But what I'm wondering as well, which might be slightly out of your area, but I do think it's amusing. If people weren't getting vaccinated, were there like crackpot solutions to these diseases? So like obviously a former president of yours might have suggested drinking bleach. Uh-huh. Or trying to get sunshine in the body. I heard yeah, that. Yeah, sunshine one. within the body. If you just mm-hmm. light in the body, then that would maybe, maybe think about it, maybe. You just feel clean on the inside, you know? (laughs) Was there a sort of a historical precedent for these sites? Well, let's not vaccinate, let's just drink bleach. Was there other solutions that people were coming up with? Sometimes (laughs) I wish the answer were no, but absolutely there were delightful alternatives like my favorite, blood tonics that would strengthen your blood against contagion. But, I mean, you're talking about these bizarre... I mean, sometimes containing things like mercury, which I, I mean, Best. that's great. I've heard for that's body. great for your blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but I find this particular topic really interesting because part of what happens is the material needed for vaccination needed to be managed in a time-sensitive way and very safely, right? So if you're transporting, say, the material used for cowpox to inoculate a whole bunch of people, it has to travel sometimes a great distance, especially if we're talking about the colonies. So. Mm-hmm. The fact that this material needed to be transported safely and efficiently, that often encountered a few problems. So you had people substituting that material with other things from, say, milk to water to assorted things you probably shouldn't be injecting into your body. It's very interesting to think about it as a problem of like vaccine logistics. It would be essentially us saying, okay, well, we can't get COVID vaccines to certain areas and people resorting to substitutions in order to fill that gap. Right. It makes sense in a very sort of elementary logic way. Like, oh, we need we need substitution somehow. So people did do that often against their better judgment, I think. Like filtering it down, like putting weird shit in it. This just sounds like what my mum does to wine. Recycling lancets. Like it's just like the things that we think of would be horrifying, but like Mm. would absolutely have been something that would happen because of the limited resources and just the scale of what Jenner when he first introduces vaccination wanted he wanted it to be a national thing Mm -hmm. and to to essentially make that nationwide at that moment is i think really required much more uh logistical infrastructure than he really could have managed praxis so I want to take you back to like a, a thing you were saying a few minutes ago about, mm-hmm. I guess, the kind of family structure and kids. And the question we have is just, um, won't someone think of the children? Mm. Discuss. Will somebody please think of the children? Think of the children. <laughs> Discuss. I, 
I mean, absolutely. Like that, that sentiment alone, I feel like has been something that I've been thinking a lot about, not just in terms of vaccination, but as somebody working in queer studies and in disability studies, where it is almost always that same conversation. Won't you think of the children? If you're queer, you must be indoctrinating or corrupting children. If you are disabled, well, you need to make sure you fix that child because that child's going to have a horrible life. Or in some cases, many cases, abort the child in advance because you don't want them to live a life of disability, right? So the sort of eugenic impulse of, mm-hmm. of uh, reproductive uh, testing and stuff like that. I mean, just to jump in here quickly though, but like Louise, you did send me a photo today that you had been indoctrinating your dog into the homosexual agenda. So I, I just... I um, bought Willow a Love is Love rainbow bandana. She fucking loves it. I mean, she doesn't know what it is, but I've decided that she loves it. Um, because I don't know if I ever mentioned on the podcast, but I do CrossFit and we've got a pride wad coming up. So we're going... Willow comes to the gym with me. She's a coach. She's great. And I got her a bandana for that. So yes, I am schooling my dog, bringing her into the homosexual agenda. Are you wearing a CrossFit jumper right now? Yes, because you know I just came back from the gym and I haven't fucking showered. I'm disgusting. <laughs> and also that's the only clothing you own. <laughs> no, that's the only clothing I've been wearing. Because <laughs> I don't know what fits anymore. Because... What's more expensive, CrossFit clothing or a CrossFit class? Oh, difficult. <laughs> it's, it's worth it. okay so can you tell us a little bit more then about i'm interested in this relationship and some of your work that you've been looking at in terms of between privacy and pain that i think we've been kind of touching on here so one thing that louise never fails to tell me about apart from her going to cross it is her cramps Mm -hmm. is that an instance of medical humanities like is my vagina medical humanities like it absolutely can be right if the personal is political it sure as hell okay good heard it here you heard it here first ladies (laughs) my vagina is medical humanities thanks but what is that kind of can can you tell us like you know beyond the jokes what is this kind of engagement in your work between privacy and pain i think it goes back to a little bit what you're saying way back at the beginning of this recording about public declarations of pain public perception of pain versus private sort of hidden elements of pain this is actually a really interesting question and i haven't really framed the way that i think about this stuff in terms of public and private and i'll try to answer in two ways and hopefully one of them will be coherent the first way is to think about how pain violates the boundary between public and private such Mm -hmm. that if pain is felt individually but also collectively is there really a difference between public right what ends up happening is the public and private part is the way that it gets articulated say if you do it privately in a poem or in a journal versus i'm giving a speech in which i'm declaring myself in pain it's the iteration of that that becomes public or private but that experience itself actually eludes the way that we might categorize it The second way is, I've been thinking a lot about how members of the disability community have been thinking about how necessary it is to have otherwise invisible pain be visible, right? Mm -hmm. So many people get written off as, well, you don't look disabled, so therefore you couldn't possibly dealing with with disability issues, right? And we, we use the word invisible disabilities to talk about that. But even that suggests that there's a there's a kind of distinction between what is visible and what is invisible. And do we even want to reaffirm that as itself a kind of ableist mm-hmm. binary, right? And I, I wonder about public and private. What does it mean to be disabled in public? And are we, do we identify with the disability community only when we are being publicly disabled? Right. Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of friends of mine in the community who ask me, oh, so why did it take you so long to sort of be forthcoming about your disability in sort of public context? And I I don't think they meant that as a sort of interrogation, but it was a real question about where I stand in terms of something we might call disability pride, disability identity, right? Whether or not we want to truly identify with an aspect of who we are. And it makes me really think about that in historical context where there wasn't an identity category by which you could identify, but you could identify with certain experiences. So when you know you get writing about pain or about a particular demographics form of pain, there was a kind of identification that's really remarkable to me. And that's where the public part is really interesting to read a novel in which you see yourself reflected as sharing that pain, right? That seems to be really moving to me, at least to study. Yeah, and, and is there a clear distinction when we think talking about historical writing between pain as experienced by a group in terms of sort of feeling pain, feeling suffering, and pain as a physical embodied response, as in, you know, I've been hit on the head, 
I feel pain. Is that something that we, sort of in contemporary terms, will talk about a community feeling pain? Or mm-hmm. is that something that existed sort of historically? Is, is there sort of a, a historicism to pain? That's a horrible question, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great question because of what it asks us to do in terms of thinking about what constitutes pain, right? So my first instinct is to think about the legacy of slavery and abolition, right? And so much of it was about the enslaved pain, right? Or the stereotypes about, say, Black bodies being incapable of feeling pain, therefore Mm. justifying their enslavement, right? So to me, there's a moment where you see the overlap between individual instances of bodies in pain that are enslaved and the collective enslaved, right, Mm -hmm. as a group that is going through trauma on multiple levels, physical, emotional, affective, right? So I, I hear both. And I find those overlaps to be so interesting. Uh, And it's always fascinating to me to read studies of, say, the history of emotions or even the history of pain that wants to focus only on singular individual representation, Mm -hmm. which can be interesting, but it misses, I think, this interchange between the singular and the collective. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's something that I think we understand intuitively, but don't talk carefully enough about, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. It's it's making me think a little bit about, so the uh, the only thing that I've touched on in that kind of area is this kind of animal studies perspectives of Mm -hmm. rather than the capacity to feel pain it's like the capacity to suffer so I wonder if that's an element that kind of feeds into this area of your work like is is suffering a a kind of a conceptual tool that you use or or versus pain like is there a different methodology or like I've lost my words is it different is it different yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Hey, what this? Hey, yes. what this? Exactly. Literally. literally. No question mark. <laughs> we both have PhDs. <laughs> I barely have mine. Um, <laughs> my instinct is to say yes. To distinguish between pain and suffering, I think is really important because when we say pain, oftentimes we're referring to a single aspect of pain, be it, say, physical pain, mental pain. But when you say suffering, you collapse that divide between, say, physical pain Mm -hmm. and sort of emotional or spiritual pain. Um, And the the reason I started thinking about it this way is the way that I think scholars in pain studies have been trying to push back against certain forms of pain as the privileged ones that get taken seriously for diagnoses for resources and care, right? Part of how the U.S. got into the opioid epidemic is because physical pain is Mm. seen as an undesirable state that can be medicalized away. For some reason, the moment that you framed it that way, I was thinking a lot too about Victorian debates about vivisection or Mm. the sort of use of live animals or even humans for experimentation. And a lot of it, a lot of the anti-vivisection movement in relation to the anti-vaccination movement, framed it similarly, which is that it is not medicine's right to inflict suffering on an individual or animal without mm-hmm. their consent or their right. And it's about prevention of suffering, which is so interesting to me historically. There's a tall body of literature about the connection between the anti-vivisection movement and gynecology, yeah. where I'm reminded of this for two reasons, because when we're talking about not believing people's pain, there's an article circulating at the moment that apparently having a coil fitted shouldn't be painful. And pretty much all of Twitter is like, ha ha ha, lady pain doesn't exist. It is awful. As someone who's had one inserted three times, like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there's a whole connection in uh, Victorian literature where the language of animal suffering, like the, people have read like Black Beauty through this lens of Victorian gynecology, which is really interesting because this idea about, you know, who suffers and women were seeing themselves as that sort of animal status because they were sort of seen as inferior, that they didn't have pain and things like that. So it's just a really interesting overlap with like Victorian gynecology, which I am definitely teaching next term because I'm going to make medical humanities rotate around your vagina. Yeah, basically. I just want to talk about my vagina some more. Thanks. Victorian disability and to stop me mm-hmm. rambling. Who is 
the most saccharine, annoying, disabled Victorian character in Victorian literature, and why is it oh, Tiny God. Tim? <laughs> <laughs> why was it better when he died? <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the original ending. <laughs> I just hate all of the adaptations of Tiny Tim. Oh. Like, oh, just like oh. then seeing during Christmas people jiffing the Tiny Tim, and it's like, no, no, please don't. That whole thing of like, oh. Now look at me and remember that Christ cured cripples. That's the language used. That's not the language I use. That's, that's the language used in the Victorian text, just to be very clear. We get it. You read it. You're so much better than I am. <laughs> Guys, it might surprise you to know that I've actually read some Dickens. <laughs> they tend to be really irritating. Is it just me? Or do disabled Victorian characters, particularly with physical disabilities, tend to be either irritating as fuck or evil? Yeah. I mean, you've literally, that is the dichotomy, right? Either irritating as fuck, uh, pitiful to the point that you're, the word you used was saccharine, which is absolutely correct, and or evil, right? This, this oversimplification of disability that makes them really easy to identify, right? Oh, it's a disabled character. Must be comic relief or pitiful and tragic or just plain evil. This is something that disability scholars have put a lot of pressure on this notion of narrative prosthesis or this idea that a character is a narrative crutch for other symbolic or curative narratives for something. So in the case of, say, Tiny Tim, right, it's not about Tiny Tim's disability or Tiny Tim's sort of life or even interiority. It's about Scrooge's moral redemption and spiritual reformation, right? Classic example where Tiny Tim just gets invoked and then ghosted away at the end. Any other examples that just really piss you off? Oh, God, there's just so many, right? There's so many. Who is, what is the name? Okay, so Wilkie Collins's Woman in White. The Woman in White is, her name is Lucy, is that right? It's um, oh my Anne, God. Anne Catherick, I think. Yes. I'm yes. hoping that's right, because otherwise I'm embarrassed. I am literally right. going to look this up, so I spare, my, <laughs> spare us all the embarrassment of like just talking about a character that doesn't exist. It is Frederick Fairley. It is Laura Fairley's father, who's a hypochondriac, and he spends oh. his whole time in his room, and he's just like, I just, I can't talk to you. Your, your voice is stressing me out. I just, I can't. And then he avoids all of the family drama mm-hmm. by essentially exacerbating all of his, his symptoms. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so interesting because, again, he's unbearable to... Mm-hmm to sort of witness because everyone wants to hear his opinion, talk to him, do stuff. And he's just like, I, just, I can't, I just, I need to be on my divan and just like, yeah. you know, way back. But what does it mean here? The disability is a kind of resistance. Like he's able to just wipe his hands of mm-hmm. family issues by claiming disability. Fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, cause it's interesting. Cause actually when I think about the, the women in white, I just think about like Anne Catherick's intellectual disability and that whole like childlikeness. And I completely ignored the hypochondriac father, uncle, whoever, like, which is, and now, like, I'm going to reread this. Um. <laughs> I think for me, my favorite 19th century disabled character is uh, Rochester at the very end, because it's just sort of like, oh, now we're really equal. Oh. <laughs> now we can enter into a love of equals because mm-hmm. you're blind and I'm rich. Like, I don't, I don't quite get it. No. Gender equality is yeah. apparently being blind and maimed. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's Come on, ladies. <laughs> now you need me. Fucking exactly. bitch. That's what Bertha went wrong. She kept you with two eyes, idiot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If Bertha had blinded you, we would have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> I really like, though, have you read The Law and the Lady, Wilkie Collins? Yes. Fucking yes. Dexter is like. <laughs> so there's this character in a wheelchair who is absolutely batshit. And he literally just zooms up and down the corridors in his wheelchair. And he's just, like, amazing. He's a genius as well. He's just, like, fucking... Ah, so this is interesting, actually, trying and going back a little bit to the discussion of, like, cognitive disability. I find it really, like, this is not my area at at all, and this is coming out of completely nowhere. I'm literally, it's just because I watched, like, X-Men the other day. Why is it that all, like, characters who are in wheelchairs are bestowed with this, like, genius intellect? It's like a really weird, 
like compensatory narrative going there that I I just yeah mm, the super crip narrative right that like oh, okay. mm. if your if your disability has kept you from living a full life at least you can make up for it because you're a genius and mm-hmm. it's it's and people eat this shit up right the idea that like oh well I may not be able to move my legs but at least I can do other things in the world right but this the the word I want to emphasize here is the way is compensation right mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. that you must make up for it in some other way to be productive and capable right rather than simply disabled which is yeah. un- intolerable in a lot I don't of know if you know but all blind people have the power of prophecy or the ability yeah. to really like kick the shit out of you as per daredevil right oh, yeah. super crip super crip just a spoonful of sugar helps the methodology go down a bit of a more serious question thinking about epistemology and things so what is epistemology um we use the term super and how does it differ from epistemology but also what's the role of lived experience in disability research like could should we use it why is it important like that's a huge question with lots of angles but sure discuss so let me let me see if i can do this in order in a way that makes sense so if epistemology is how we know what we know to use a neologism Crepistemology is a move in disability studies and disability theory to think about how disabled lived experience is precisely the place where knowledge making can be done and should be done, mm-hmm. and for it to be taken as serious forms of knowledge, uh, rather than seeing it as, I think, in the legacy of a lot of scholarship and even in some very well-meaning diversity, equity, inclusion measures, right, seeing it as a kind of liability or like, oh, well, let's let the disabled people have their moment, but we're not really going to take them seriously. It's a, it's a political stance, but also one that has to do with what we do in the academy, right? What does it mean to put disability at the center of the way we think about something? So a, a great example of this is even in the the scholarship surrounding, say, the legacy of slavery, what would it mean to think about how disability is that which is used to enslave, right? To produce disability in slaves as a way of managing their bodies and their minds, as well as ensuring a sort of future of further enslaved people in generations to come, right? Like to think about disability at the center of things, I think is a is really an important move that we're just now beginning to do because disability studies is apparently now trendy. So hot right now. I know. And they're actually disabled scholars doing this work. So ready for disabled scholar summer. <laughs> they're a very hot. Hot crit summer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> totally. Something that really emerged out of disability rights and justice has been this slogan Uh, nothing about us without us, right? So, so often disabled people, disabled experience um, gets invoked in all sorts of scholarship, be it in literary criticism or in sociology, but it's never really about those disabled people at all, but about the way that they're represented or how they can be used in symbolic or transgressive ways. But I think we're finally coming to the point where we're confronting how that kind of scholarship in fact further objectifies disabled people and displaces the very people that this work should be about. I'm very committed to thinking about how disabled lived experience problematizes even the very basic things we think we know about disability, right? The, this ongoing claim in disability studies that disability didn't exist before the 19th century, before the statistical norm appeared. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous, right? But Again, the moment that you resituate lived experience, that whole concept falls apart, even though it's become a central narrative in disability studies. And that's fascinating to me how that how that happens. I mean, I'm very impressed that you managed to take Louise's like very long, very hard question and actually answer it because that's very impressive. I just ramble my way towards something that's like yes. vaguely an answer. I'm just going to point out that I'm dyslexic and therefore formulating questions can be a bit of an issue for me. Oh, shut so up. So actually you're being quite lost <laughs> right now. <laughs> oh, I'll put a penny in Called the ableist jar. Sorry. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Buy you a cookie or something. <laughs> Okay, but I actually have a final question because we are on the, I'm getting, we're getting better at this um, actually keeping to time thing. So, um, right. As the poetry person, what is crip poetry? Uh, Sorry, sorry. 
the poetry person on this <laughs> podcast on, on this on podcast, podcast bitch like what are you on about like not the poetry person i, know, I, I, mean, come up I would literally ego. correct you and be like no i am not yeah. the poetry person Please. by any means <laughs> no, all right you know what i'm going i'm leaning in as the ultimate poetry person on this earth um no as the person who doesn't know fucking anything about 19th century or novels i like poems what's crit poetry tell us a bit more I think you've asked the question that I've been spending probably the past three to five years trying to answer, which is what, what am I doing when I write poetry and why am I doing it as opposed to my scholarship? And I feel like I don't have uh, an answer I can really fully stand by, even though I feel like at its very simplest form, I'm really committed to, at least in my take on crit poetry, a kind of description or inhabiting of disabled experience such that it is not trying to extract from it some significant meaning or aestheticizing it to something beautiful, but to really inhabit it in all of its forms, even if that, say, changes the way that the poem feels and reads, it becomes maybe less about meaning, but about shape or about association or effective relationships with that poem. I'm interested in that rather than I think this impulse that I see even disabled poets feeling like they have to do, which is they suddenly have to be spokespeople for the community mm. and that their poetry has to be exemplary of that kind of uh, transformative significance of their disability. What would it mean to just sit in pain for a while in my case, um, mm. or to think about how my spinal curvature determines every single bit of what I'm doing right now, or even as I'm writing a poem um, that to me has been, really important and it doesn't have to resolve itself in a kind of neat and clean ways mm. it's interesting that you said that you do it in opposition to your scholarship because to me this sounds like part of like very very much attached to scholarship right so not in terms of doing it for an academic institution that wants to reap the rewards of your own pain but like it, i don't know it's it sounds like a working through and a kind of a thinking with and being with which is to me scholarly pursuit as well I think it's really telling that the academic conventions that affirm scholarship as rigorous or good often mm -hmm. involves having to disavow those aspects. And that's something that I have found exhausting. The kind of scholarship that I don't want to do, unfortunately, because of the nature of what we do in the profession, we have to do that kind of disembodied, distance critic persona. But I think you're right. In the way that I'm seeing my career now, I want to do scholarship that's like my poetry, mm -hmm. um, that is working in tandem rather than in opposition. But in truth, I, I moved to poetry because I was so exhausted by academic writing yeah. and the kind of posturing and violence that comes with it, right? This idea that you have to suddenly purge your writing self of feeling, pain, individuality, right? In order to have distanced and rigorous scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder who is that idealized figure that people imagine Writing scholarship. Oh, totally an ab yeah, able-bodied white man mm -hmm. who is doing just fine because he has the resources to do so, right? And also he doesn't need to get engaged with politics because politics works for him. Mm -hmm. Nothing is political because exactly because everything fine. works. Yep. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. I think it's really important. I think there's a sort of growing number of scholars like yourselves doing this sort of thing. So in particularly in like neurodiversity scholarship, people like um Remy Yergo who yes. write in narrative form. Their, their work is it's because storytelling functions and therefore I'm going to present it in this way. I think it's really, really exciting and, and it's exciting to be sort of working in disability studies in this area because I think it's kind of one of those fields where you can push that boundary more. The problem is always like, how do we quantify the work of disabled scholars if it's sort of embodied work, which is just so wrong on so many levels because this notion of quantifying is just totally I'm going off on a rant but I think one thing that's totally ironic if you're working on chronic pain and if your institution is literally benefiting from your, your work on pain through your pain in writing it you're just like the fuck sorry if that is the complete misrepresentation but like I'm going no, on a rant spot on. I'm going on an absolute on. rant so I'm going to stop I will say one thing though which is that it is it still remains a risk to do it and mm. I've had graduate students and undergraduate students say, well, you know, is that how I should be navigating the academy? And I'm like, it's a risk, right? Like you can be 
attacked, devalued, degraded by departments and communities because of this kind of work. And I never want people to sort of take me as an example and say, oh, I need to be public about every aspect of my, my disability. There are consequences for that. My DMs speak for themselves. Like I get hate mail all the time, but it is a byproduct Jesus. of being public, right? You are exposing yourself in ways that unfortunately as a community, as a profession, as a culture, we just haven't gotten there yet. I also think it's a byproduct for just like being right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think if you, if you have hate mail, you like you've won, you're great. You, you're up there. You're on the right path. <laughs> Even though I would not subject it upon anyone. Anyone I else. Would never no. want that's anyone. Why, that's why you're better. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to getting some for being told I am the person of poet. I mean, there's where's the lie? Yeah. You've not been slagged off by some rando on the internet yet, have you, Alex? Not to my knowledge. I got I called trash. Been. You've made it. I've yet to make it. <laughs> yeah. One day. One day. One day. She's a super freak. The super-crip narrative perpetuates an oppressive, unrealistic ideal for the cultural acceptance of disabled persons. This is not cool. Cool. Um, we would like to follow up at the end of the podcast with asking if you have any sort of plugs, any, any work that's appearing soon or anything that you'd like to share. Share. Well, our dedicated listeners. Dedicated legions of fans. The, in the spirit of what we just talked about, my instinct is not to talk about my scholarship, but talk about Good. my book of poems that came out during the pandemic, which mm. it's right Have here, actually. I think it's right above me. I just prepared this little, It's my little chapbook called Pairing. Oh, I love it. I love the cover. I have um, I have a painting of a grapefruit that looks like a vagina. So yeah. when I saw this, I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> when my uh, designer and drew up the mock of this, I was like, this is it. Like I wanted a very fleshy fruit and it was mm -hmm, exactly mm -hmm. that. It was, it was weird having a book come out in the pandemic about chronic pain, about growing up, about struggle when we were all literally struggling in like far more intense ways. So part of me felt weird celebrating it, but it's the thing that I feel like I'm most proud of, of producing in this time and having out in the world. Um, and I appreciate the many, many people who, who supported the book thus far. But I would definitely say, if you have a moment, please pick up the chapbook. Sweet. We will definitely be linking that in the show notes. Definitely in the show notes. Um, otherwise, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Travis. Thank that was great. It was such a pleasure. I'm, I'm so glad that we can have fun talking about really serious things because <laughs> sometimes I feel like academics can use a little bit of humor. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. We've been my Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter OW. And the number 5G. Our shape this week is a mask. Wear a bloody mask. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross posting. Bye.